This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to Libromania, a podcast for the book obsessed from the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and each week I'm chatting with authors, biographers, designers, collectors, critics, and other people who help make books so worthy of our attention. This is chapter 19, in which I chat with North Carolina author David Joy about the work of the regional novelist. I've never really sat down with any type of intention when I write a story. That's just not how stories come to me. Typically, you know, there'll be some type of singular event that I know in my head, uh, and then it's a matter of figuring out who those characters are and just kind of following them blindly. I think the primary reason that those themes come up again and again in my work is because that's the only thing I know. A few months back, I was at a conference and I got to talking about books with my friend Martin Cothran. He's one of my go-tos for adding books to my library, especially when it comes to crime fiction. And while we were talking, he suddenly got excited and told me I had to check out this new author he discovered, a novelist named David Joy. Martin told me about how Joy is a North Carolina-based writer who writes crime fiction and thrillers based in the North Carolina mountains and how his characters are among the richest, most resonant characters he discovered in recent years. So, naturally, I immediately jumped online and purchased a few copies of Joy's most recent work, The Line That Held Us. An Appalachian noir about a man named Darrell Moody who, when hunting after a monster deer he's chased for years, accidentally shoots a man digging ginseng. But worse yet, he's killed a brewer, a member of a family notorious for vengeance and violence. With nowhere to turn, Darrell calls on the help of the only man he knows will answer, his best friend Calvin Hooper. But when Dwayne Brewer comes looking for his missing brother and stumbles onto a blood trail leading straight back to Darl and Calvin, a nightmare of revenge rips apart their world. The Line That Held Us is a story of friendship and family, a tale balanced between destruction and redemption where the only hope is to hold on tight. Reading The Line That Held Us, I quickly discovered that Martin was right. David Joy's work really does have a, uh, a verve, a zeal that is intoxicating. And from the first page of his books, you know that verve and that zeal are tied to the place he's writing from and about. Joy's work is truly, truly defined by the North Carolina mountains where he lives and about which he tells his stories. And so I wanted to chat with him here on the podcast about what it's like to be a regional novelist, to be a writer whose work and to some degree whose reputation is tied to a part of the country that is often forgotten or at least uh, maybe whitewashed behind the sheen of tourist-friendly cabins and the quaint village streets. The North Carolina of David Joy's work is more human than that, more alive than the sanitized version you see in travel brochures. But that doesn't mean it's stereotypical or mean-spirited, like a lot of fiction about the rural South. When I say it's more human, more alive, what I mean is that his work is rich with the details of a particular place, the language that defies it, the, the places that give it shape and the history by which it remembers and, and is remembered. So Joy's work is, as Martin pointed out to me, definitely worth checking out. So for this conversation, Mr. Joy joined me on the phone from his worksite to chat about what it's like to be a regional novelist. Whether that's something he set out to be when he got started, 
and what it means to have one's work associated uh, with a place, the good, the bad, and the unintended uh, of that. So here it is. Here is my interview with David Joy. Enjoy. You're up there um, in Jackson County, right? Correct. Yeah. But you grew up in, in the Charlotte area, is that right? And I, or you were born there at least? Yeah, yeah. So my mama's family, they was from uh, up around Boone. They were from Wilkes County in Wilkesboro. And then my daddy's family was from Mecklenburg County. Uh, and so they'd kind of settled in and around Charlotte and the Piedmont uh, late 1700s. Uh, so yeah, I grew up in a community that's called Paul Creek, but, but it's, yeah, it's, it's basically Charlotte has encompassed that at this point. Okay. So where would that be now? I, I live in Concord. Yeah. Uh, Freedom Drive, you know where Freedom Drive is? Yeah. 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 Okay. yeah. Freedom Drive, if you, if you headed, uh, if you took that back, kind of headed towards Justin County, it would dump you out in a place called Tank Town. Okay. Uh, and that's Paul Creek. So what brought you, I mean, what sent you up to the mountains? Was it college? Uh, originally, yeah. Yeah. I went, I'm, I moved to uh, Cullowee going to college uh, and really just, I was, I was chasing a girl, to be honest. I, <laughs> she, she was going to college at Western and, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And uh, I wound up kind of following her up there. And then uh, I just kind of, that didn't, you know, she and I didn't work out, but, but the place just kind of stuck. Mm. Uh, and really, I, I guess what I guess what kept me here more than anything is the similarity in the culture, yeah. uh, you know, between my family and where I grew up and the people here. I, th- I think you know that culture and that that type of community and that type of uh, rootedness to landscape has largely uh, been erased from the area where I grew up, but it was still uh, very present at the time when I moved here. Was that a big part of your upbringing? I mean, even if it wasn't, you know, even if it wasn't as present um, sort of publicly, was it privately within your family something that was still important? That rootedness the to the land? Yeah, the rootedness oh, to the yeah, land and things yeah. like that. I mean, yeah. And see, so that, that's what's, uh, I, I think that's what's hard for a lot of people to understand is that, uh, you know, when, it, when I, if you look and say, well, he's from Charlotte. Uh, they envisioned Charlotte as it is now when the, yeah. uh, and, and, and that place has changed, uh, very drastically over, especially over my lifetime, but especially, you know, the last 20 years. And so when I was growing up, there was, it was still very rural. Uh, you know, I grew up in a, in a neighborhood, uh, that was just cow pasture, yeah. uh, running through cow pastures every day, fishing a farm pond. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, I'd ride around with my grandmother and all the houses that are on that side of the town, uh, for the most part, were built by, by people in my family. Or mm. she would point out a field and say, you know, we used to grow tobacco there. We used to pick cotton there. Uh, right. and, and so I grew up very, very centered to land. Uh, and then largely all of it was, I mean, it was just bulldozed. You know, it was bulldozed and and put in shopping centers as, as people began to move into that area. Yeah. So do you, I mean, would you feel disoriented? I mean, is that one of the reasons you left? It just didn't feel like the same place anymore. You just had to, had to get out and, and, and uh, find something that felt more like what you were meant, meant to be living in. I, th- I think maybe more, I've always been rooted to land, but I think as I look back, I think probably more of it is that uh, I felt, 
alienated by culture. Uh, you know, I, when I look at Charlotte now, I don't think that Charlotte really has an identity anymore in the way that it did. Um, you know, and, and that type, the culture that I grew up around uh, has has been erased from that place, uh, and it's currently being erased from this place, uh, and it's it's part of that ongoing, uh, you know, urban rural divide. Uh, you know, I think that the rural identity is largely being erased from this country, mm-hmm. uh, and and so I think when I moved here originally, I think you know what I latched onto were were the people. Uh, and you know, there were all these, just all of these similarities, the attachment, the store, the attachment, the land, the attachment, the community, uh, those were all things that I'd grown up with, uh, that I had watched, you know, disappear and, and seeing them again. It was like, this, this is where I'm meant to be. Yeah. So in your own work, do you, do you, um, like once you got set down to write novels and stories and then things like that, was the, was there a was the goal in your head of of giving voice to those people and those stories you were hearing, or 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 was it more like you just you had stories in you and they needed to come out and that just kind of became the stories that you told? Yeah, I don't think that there was any. Uh, you know, I've never really sat down with any type of intention uh, yeah. when I when I write a story. That's just not how how stories come to me. Uh, typically, you know, my, you know, there'll be some type of singular event that I know in my head. Uh, and then it's a matter of figuring out who those characters are and just kind of following them blindly. Uh, I think one of the, I think the primary reason that those themes come up again and again in my work is because that's just the, you know, that's the only thing I know. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not an academic. Uh, I'm, I'm, I don't have an MFA. Uh, you know, I left a construction site to come sit in the parking lot and take this call. Uh, I, I'm surrounded by working class people. Uh, those are the people that I know. Those are the voices that I hear. Uh, you know, and so I, I think largely for me, the reason that those things come across and the reason that so many people latch on to them and identify them as authentic uh, is, is largely because that's just, that is literally all that I know. Mm. You mentioned you're not an academic, you don't have an MFA, that sort of thing. Do you, I, I don't want to put too fine a point on it, I guess, but does that kind of stuff bother you? I mean, does that, does that kind of repulse you? Do you wish, I mean, or would you, would you do that if the option came up, you know, to go back to school or, you know, to get, I don't know, I don't know what kind of education you had per se, but to get more formal education and specifically in writing novels and fiction? Uh, that, well, I, I think that there are multiple... Uh, that, that's a, a complicated uh, answer in, in that yeah. um, there are some very talented writers that I know who benefited greatly from going into an MFA program and really honing their craft. Yeah. Uh, you know, a really good friend of mine, for instance, Leah Hampton, she's a brilliant short story writer. Uh, and she'll have a short story question coming out next year, but she, uh, mm. she went, and studied at the Mickner Institute. Uh, you know, she was a Mickner fellow in Texas. And, uh, you know, I, I look at how her work grew. And I think that was a perfect fit for her. Mm. Uh, and, I, and I've looked at people who have gone into MFA programs, for instance, if they wanted to study with a very particular writer. Yeah, and, yeah, I, yeah. and so I think that there are a whole lot of benefits that can take place. 
at the same time, I do take issue with the idea of uh, kind of this industrial look uh, or this industrial approach to an artist. Hmm. I don't think that you can take anybody and put them in an MFA program and, and turn them into a novelist. I, I wholeheartedly believe that artists are born that way. Hmm. Uh, artists create because they feel compelled to do stuff. So. Uh, it, it, it is very much a compulsion. Hmm. Uh, if, I, if I had never sold a novel I, or sold a story, it, it wouldn't have changed anything. You know, I, I would have I, I continued to write uh, because I felt compelled to do so. Uh, and, and so I think, you know, and that, that's very much an American phenomenon. You know, that doesn't happen in other in other countries that they, they don't they don't believe that you send somebody to school and teach them to become a novelist. Uh, that, that's definitely kind of a monetized American, you know, economy type approach to, to the arts. Yeah. Yeah. I heard someone call that the, the writer's industrial complex once. Um, yeah, yeah, and I, yeah, and I, I, you know, and it spits out a lot of people. And, and, and I, I think one thing that I have noticed is that a lot of times I find that people can write very pretty sentences, but they can't tell a story. Hmm. Uh, and, and I think that it can teach you to write a pretty sentence uh, hmm. that doesn't necessarily make you a storyteller. Uh, and I, and I, I think that would be true of, of an MFA in anything. I think that, you know, you could go and, and be a painter. Uh, and they can yeah. teach you the technical approach of how to paint a picture. Uh, but that does not mean that you're going to be the next Walton Ford. Uh, you know, there are people who are born to be artists and there, and there aren't. Mm. Mm. So, okay, let me ask you this thing. You know, the idea of being born to be a storyteller. Did you come from a family of storytellers? You said it, you know, you, you said it's kind of a compulsion, I guess. So is that something that was a compulsion for? for your family, for your parents, for your grandparents, and it was part of the, the sort of culture of your, of your home life? Yeah. Well, I mean, I grew up in an, in an oral storytelling tradition. Hmm. And so growing up, you know, uh, really my best friend was my grandmother. Uh, and, and she was probably the best storyteller I've ever, I've ever known. Hmm. Um, but I've, I never could really, I'm not a very good orator. Uh, I can't tell a story in that way. Uh, it's, it's two completely different forms of storytelling. You know, if I had taken and transcribed one of my grandmother's story onto the page, it, it wouldn't have worked. Uh, you know, on the page, it would have been horrible, but in life it was magic. Uh, and so there, it's two very different things, but I think, you know, as far as the tradition that I come from, it, it's very much an oral storytelling tradition. Uh, and, and to this day, I mean, the places that I go, I, I, I really don't have very many friends that are my age. Most of my friends are, you know, in their sixties or older. Um, but I, I tend to, I tend to gravitate towards older people. I tend to gravitate towards places where people sit around and tell stories. Uh, and, and so I, yeah, I, I think that's very much rooted in, in how I grew up. Hmm. I asked you a variation on this question a, a minute ago, but I want to ask a little bit differently because you mentioned that you're, you have all these friends that are older and, and you, that your grandmother was your best friend. So in some ways, do, do you think that part of the compulsion for you is, is telling stories because it, it uh, preserves what they've got to say and, and the way that they speak and, and um, preserves uh, the place in some way. Um, and, and that your story can kind of, your, your stories, your work can kind of 
and kind of aid in the cause of preservation? I, you know, in the beginning, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have said that I really thought about that at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the more that I write, um, you know, and the older I get, what I find is that there are things that I've written and things that I write uh, that I then later watch disappear. Mm-hmm. And, and when I look back mm-hmm. on those things, uh, you know, play, even just places, uh, you know, because I'm writing very specifically about Jackson County and Jackson County is, is a place that is, you know, constantly evolving, constantly changing. Yeah. Uh, and, and so when you write about a place at a singular moment in time uh, and you write about it accurate to that point in time, and then, you know, you get five years down the road, you get 10 years down the road and that place isn't there anymore, uh, you know, for, for an outsider, I don't necessarily know that it matters to them. Uh, but what you do end up with is this sort of, you know, time capsule of, of, uh, of a place that, that existed. Uh, and, and so, yeah, I, I think that can happen. Uh, and, and I've heard, I've heard, you know, Ron Rash was a mentor and, and friend to me for a really long time. I've heard Ron talk about that. Uh, and Ron was very adamant about wanting to, to do that uh and and so i think about maybe like a short story of his like 3 a.m and the stars were out uh about that that uh, old time farmhand vet veterinarian you know that was going out and visiting mm-hmm. farms and taking care of cattle and stuff yeah. uh, and that's something yeah. that, that is disappearing but it, it, and so i think when i think about some of his stories yeah he was doing the same thing so I think even if you're not intentionally doing that, it just if you're writing accurately about a place and a people, uh, that's going to eventually, uh, you know, have to be have to be what it is. Hmm. I interviewed a couple of years ago. I went down to Kentucky, or up to Kentucky and I interviewed Wendell Berry on his farm, and uh, he talked there about the concept of how how he, when he started out, you know, 60 years ago or whatever, these places, he was just writing stories about the places. And then over the decades, they just changed so much and they go away. And even the town that he lived in, you know, it's got a couple hundred people that live in it now. And it, you know, the, the young people are leaving. and And so he became more sort of mission oriented as he went on. And he started saying that people started realizing that people were sort of referring to those places as nowhere places. I think he says that in a, there's a documentary about him recently uh, that where he recalls, he says that people just think of these places as nowhere places. And then in some ways over the years, he f- sort of felt like compelled to give them a name in a sense uh, because no yeah. one else was going to do that. So when you think about like Jackson County, you live in, is it Webster? Or you live near near Webster? I live in a place called Plot Creek now, but yeah, uh, not not very far down the road at all. Okay. So these are like pretty small places, right? As far as population. Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, the the total population in Jackson County kind of fluctuates because we have a large uh, seasonal crowd of of retirees that come and go. Um, But but it tends to be around 40,000 people. For the whole county, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And we're talking about a tremendous amount of country. Uh, you yeah. know what I mean? I mean, it's a very big place. Yeah, yeah. So do you, um, you know, I look at some of the characters in, say, 
the line that held us, which the paperback for that's coming out soon, if I'm not mistaken. And I look at some of the characters yeah. in there. And when you think, I mean, when these characters come to you or these, these moments, these scenes come to you, um, do you actively think, well, I want this character to be like um, someone specific or uh, someone... Um, I guess. I guess. How much? How much do you do you build a character or uh, or or a scene to, in some way, um, actively give name or or give place to what other people might think of as as a nowhere place? Well, I don't think that I model characters uh, after people, uh, mm. at least not purposefully. Right. Um, right. You know, yeah. when I when typically when a novel or a story starts for me, I've got an image, uh, something that I know happened and I can typically see the people in it. Uh, I mean, I, I'm a very visual person and I can literally quite literally see them. Uh, and then it's a matter of trying to figure out all right, who are these people? How did they get there? Uh, and that typically is something that kind of evolves over maybe six months or a year until it gets to the point where I know those characters inside and out. Uh, I know how they're going to respond to certain situations. Um, you know, I've, I've always kind of made this joke that they might not go to Waffle House, but if they did go to Waffle House, I know how they would order their hash browns. Uh, you know, it's very, you know, it's a very, they're very real to me. Um, but as far as, uh, you know, traits and mannerisms, uh, that they pick up, they, that's definitely shaped by, by this place. You know, people have a very unique sound here. People, people say things here that they don't say in Haywood County, which is the next County over or, or, you know, Macon County. Uh, you know, there are things that are very specific to Jackson County. Uh, And a lot of times when I hear them in my head, uh, you know, that's very much modeled after, after a reality. Uh, you know, people have a lot of times I've noticed uh, when people get mad here, uh, like real mad, uh, they'll they'll jut their chin out. Uh, they'll stick their chin further out. Uh, you know, and it, it, it's something that I haven't ever even really noticed anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Or when somebody uh, they they have an expression. And this is more at the south end of the county, but but they'll use the word they. And they'll use that singular word "they" as an expression of disbelief. So sure. it's like, uh, "Do you hear? Do you hear so and so's wife left him?" And they say, "They." Huh. And it's like, like, no, I don't believe that. It's, it's, uh, and I think that it was a shortening of like "they Lord" or "They Lord have mercy," huh. uh, but they shorten it all the way to "they." And and to somebody not from here, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, and, and so, you know, there are all these mannerisms, uh, and, and, you know, I think I've, I think I've just got an eye and an ear for that. Uh, and so I'm constantly, constantly picking those things up and, and then, yeah, they, they inevitably find their way into the fiction. Do you incorporate something that's obscure like that, at least to people, to outsiders into the books or, um, without explaining it and just kind of let it, let it sit there? Uh, well, so for some, so with something like the word they, I don't think that you could because I don't think that it would work on the page. Uh, there's no reference point. And so the only way that you could do that, uh, would be to 
to then have a sentence explaining it early on so yeah, then when yeah. people did it later, you know, they would, they would pick up on it. And so for a lot of times, I think that it gets too, uh, you know, it, it gets too heavy to tote around in, in, the, in a manuscript. And so a lot of times, no, I don't do that. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, you know, there are things like, like there's a place here that it's spelled W-A-Y-E-H-U-T-T-A, which to, to anybody else would look like way hutta. Uh, but we pronounce it worry hut. And, <laughs> and so I'll slip in something to force a reader to pronounce it the way that it's supposed to be pronounced. Or, uh, you know, and, and so I, I do things like that. Or just, or just the way that people shape sentences. Uh, you know, I, I'll leave that. Uh, oftentimes I find that, that where I run into trouble is, a, is not with my editor, uh, but with my copy editors, like when copy editors start working on oh, yeah. manuscript, yeah, um, yeah. because they're trying to follow rules and, and the things that I'm doing don't follow rules. <laughs> uh, you know, yeah. it, it's just not the way that, that language, you know, that a, that a living language works. Mm. I love that stuff. I love, you know, I, like I said, I live in, I live in Concord, which it's, I don't know, it's changing pretty rapidly too, especially on the outskirts of it as it, Charlotte kind of encroaches upon it, but I live downtown Concord enough to where you got a lot of people who've lived here for 50, 60 years and their, their grandparents lived here and you know, they were, they grew up on the farms and stuff. And so I'll go to the grocery store, go to the food line. And every time I go, I hear something I've never heard, heard before. Uh, and, and yeah, I, and it's crazy that, you know, you live, I don't know, two, and not even two hours from me, maybe. And it's almost like, I mean, it's not a different language, but there's, you know, the way the language is used and the way it sort of felt is completely different. And that's, that's fascinating. And so when you're, when you're, when you're trying to get something like that across, do you, do you just kind of let it flow or is it kind of like a puzzle for you where you think I gotta, I gotta, this particular character is going to speak, you know, in this sort of way. Like I think about Dwayne in uh, the line that held us, he seems to speak with some of those cadences uh, maybe more pronounced, unusual cadences than, at least for outsiders, than say someone like I don't know Calvin, who, not that he doesn't speak in a way that's unique to the place, but maybe it's not quite as as pronounced as as Dwayne. So, did yeah. you go into that thinking, well, this guy's a character who he definitely speaks this way, and maybe this guy doesn't speak quite that way? Uh, well, I th- Dwayne had a very very particular uh, voice when I heard him. Uh, and he also had a voice that changed uh, based off of emotion. Hmm. Uh, and, and so when, you know, when there are casual moments where in my mind he sounds one way, and then when he gets angry, he sounds entirely differently. Hmm. Uh, there's almost this, this King James cadence to him when he gets incredibly angry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so I, th- you know, I think that uh, for for me, he had a very complicated voice when I heard him, mm. uh, and so I, I think you know he definitely comes across, definitely sounds different than Calvin, definitely sounds different than Doll. Mm-hmm. Uh, all three of them, you know, uh, I think sound like people from here, uh, but but yeah, th- he had he had just an, an entirely different way of talking. Uh, and, and I think, yeah, I think it is just, you know, I just hear it, uh, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's not something that I, you know, again, it's not something I'm really 
conscious of or 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 thinking of or planning yeah uh, it's just it, it's it seems to happen more organically than that hmm. is that king james sort of influence cadence something you hear a lot up there yeah and and, and you know uh and, and ron has, has talked about this is is there's a there's a shakespearean english element uh to this place hmm. the way that they will structure sentences and i think both of those things are true uh you know and there was a place uh the second novel of mine was set in a community in Jackson county called little canada and uh there is a and who knows if this is true or not, but there there was an old story where they talked about a community that was out in the woods uh, that hmm. they kind of stumbled upon that was living out there and that these people all spoke like like true old King James English. Huh. Uh, like they, they structured all of their sentences exactly like that. And in a way, I guess maybe it makes sense. You know, if that if that's the only book that you read, uh, then then I think that it would have to heavily influence your your language and your mm. and your speech patterns. Mm. Um, but I, you know, Flannery O'Connor's got that idea that you know the South is not necessarily Christ centered, but it is most definitely Christ haunted. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think yeah. there's that's absolutely true. You know. Almost everybody who grows up in the South and everybody who grows up here in these mountains, uh, they go to church at least every Sunday, and most of them go Monday, Wednesday, and Sunday. Yeah. Uh, and so you grow up hearing that language, yeah. uh, you know, and, and for most of the people up here, especially, there's not but one version of the Bible, and it's the King James. You know, they're yeah. not reading, you know, any, you know, new standard <laughs> version or something like that. They're reading the King James. So they, so they hear, uh, language in a in a very specific way, and so I th- you know I don't think that there's any way to uh, survive without without that influence carrying over into the into the way that you talk. Mm. Was that true for you? I mean, did you grow up hearing that that King James Bible in your home, or did you were you going to churches where they were doing King James stuff? Well, I was I was my family was Methodist, so uh, okay. you know I was in church. I was in church Mondays, Wednesdays, and Sundays, but it was uh, you know they were reading a different version of the Bible. But at the you yeah. know, at the same time, I you know I, I think I'm heavily influenced by that. Uh, you know, I, when I think about even when even when I think about the violence that finds its way into into my work, I think that that's largely a result of being brought up in a place where where you know, you heard stories of tremendous violence from the time that you were, you know, very little. Mm. I mean, the entire Christian faith is based around these very horrifically violent stories. It just is, uh, you know, and, and so I think, you know, when I think about the influences that it has had on my writing, I think it influenced the sound, uh, but I think it's also influenced the content. Mm. So do you, I mean, in some way, do you feel like your, your work is, is a process of, I mean, I don't want to, I don't know, I don't want to psychoanalyze anything, but like in some ways, do you feel like it's when you, when you introduce scenes of violence and um, you put these characters through these things or you find them going through these things, you discover that is in, in any way trying to work, work through the violence that you came across in the Bible as a kid? Like, well, maybe what it meant or. I don't think that I would say that. I do think I would say that. Uh, when you grow up in the South and you grow up in a 
in a community and a culture that is so heavily influenced by Christianity and the church uh, that there is a direct tie between storytelling and violence. Uh, those two things seem to go hand in hand. You know, whether we're talking Old Testament uh, pillar assault type of violence or we're talking about nailing somebody to a cross violence, uh, you know, yeah. uh, you grow up hearing stories that are, that are you know, told in that way. And I, I think it just can't help but influence it. Uh, and and I, at the same time, I think, you know, I think it's, it's something that makes a story move. And so when I'm trying to tell a, when I'm writing a novel, uh, what I'm really trying to do is, is make a story move. Uh, I want a reader to just, I want, you know, one of my favorite words that anybody has ever used to describe my work is propulsive. Uh, you know, I, I, like I, I want a reader to keep turning pages and I want them to, you know, feel like they can't stop turning pages. Well, I definitely read the line that held us in like, uh, I mean, I don't know, maybe two sittings. So yeah, if you accomplished yeah. that for me, I, I, was, I was up real late finishing it last night. Um, awesome. So, so I, I, I don't want to keep you too much longer, but um, you can you can stop me whenever you need to. But um, you mentioned Ron, and you mentioned uh, the King James Bible, and and some of the stories that you know your grandma told. But what what were some of the other influences that uh, that made you want to be a writer, or that you think have shaped your voice and the way you think about storytelling? Well, that, I think, you know, growing up, this is what's hard for a lot of people to understand. They they tend to always think, oh, you must have been a huge reader as a kid. And it was like, no, I, I didn't. And I wasn't a huge reader as a kid. Uh, I can count the books that I loved as a child on two fingers. Uh, you know, Gary Tolson's Hatchet and Walter <laughs> Dean Myers' Fallen Angels. Yeah. Uh, and outside of that, most of the things that I was handed, I just didn't enjoy uh, and and so it wasn't that I, I that I didn't like reading, but it was that I I didn't find things that interested me. Uh, and you know, Ron largely shaped that in the sense that he gave me a copy of uh, William Gay's "I Hate to See That Evening Sun Go Down." Oh yeah. And the first time I read those stories, and the first time I read William, it was like it was like he's writing about my people. Uh, and it's a voice that I know and, and I yeah. was in love with it. Yeah. Uh, and, and so I think it's people like William Gay. I think it's, uh, you know, obviously Larry Brown, but Daniel Woodrell, uh, you know, Lee Smith, Jill McCorkle, yeah. uh, you know, there, are, there are lots of people. Uh, and, and then I think once I fell in love with reading, uh, now you know, I'll read anything under the sun. Uh, yeah. You know, it, it, it's I'm not just reading Southern writers. Uh, you know, one of my favorite books of the of the last year was was uh, Gabino Iglesias' Tyler Songs, uh, which is which is largely uh, it's crime fiction. You know, and there's violence, but there's beauty there, and it and it's written about a people that I don't really know, which is kind of uh, you know this migrant culture, this immigrant culture. Uh, set set kind of on the Texas border, um, and and so I read a lot more broadly now than I than I think I used to. But I, it's still the same. When I fall in love with a book, it's still uh, a matter of language to me. Uh, it's, a, it's still very much the structure of the sentences. How do the sentences sound? 
Uh, I find that, you know, I get, I get sent books all the time and it's actually very rare for me to fall in love with a book, uh, anymore. I, 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 I might be even getting pickier. Uh, I read a lot more poetry than I read fiction. And, and I think it is because of that attention to language. Uh, I want a sentence to sing. Uh, I want there to be rhythm. Uh, you know, there are a whole lot of things that are happening on a page for me, uh, that, to make it work that maybe the average person doesn't care about. Do you, do people in from, from where you live, do, I mean, do they, do they ever come to you and say, you know, thank you for telling stories about our place for me, you know, you know, people, I'm sure the people from your area or from North Carolina in general, you know, could, could become, could write about wherever they want if they're skilled and become famous and, you know, go write about, you know, crime fiction in New York or LA or something. But do people come to you and say, thank you for doing what you're doing for our place? Or maybe, maybe they do the opposite. I don't know. <laughs> no, no. I think, yeah. I think, I think for the most part, the people that have approached me that are from this place, uh, and the people who matter to me, yeah, uh, or whose opinion matters to me, have all been uh, incredibly thankful and, in, and incredibly supportive. Uh, the only times that I've ever gotten any type of negative feedback from people in this place, it's tended to be people who aren't from here. Okay. Uh, you know, it's people who, who come from the outside and then say, well, no, that's not, you know, yeah. uh, and, and those are people that I, that I could care less what they think. Uh, yeah. you know, they're, they're, you know, walking through this world with their fingers in their ears and blinders on their eyes. Mm. Uh, you know, they they don't really get this place. And, so, and I, so the people that matter to me, you know, uh, I have been very supportive of everything that I've done. Are those people with the the blinders in their eyes and their fingers in their ear? I mean, are they looking at what are they complaining about? Are they looking at it saying, "Well, it's, this place isn't as violent as or or as grim as maybe your books at times portray it to be?" or or, or yeah, that, yeah, I think that's largely it, and I think it's largely because they're wanting those books to be some sort of, uh, you know, they're wanting the story to be uh, representative of this place. And and the, what's wild is, you know, that that was never the intention. I'm not trying to. This isn't some damn, you know, tourism book. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm trying to tell a compelling story, and and people who are from here get that. They know that yeah. I'm not saying that you know, that that's what this place is, that people are, obviously people aren't just running around and killing people everywhere. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, yeah. it's, they get the, what I find is that outsiders who have moved here, look at my work and try to try to make the entire thing an accurate portrayal. Yeah. And they yeah. can't, they can't reconcile that in their mind. Versus people who were born and raised here, who have you know family ties going back two hundred years to this place, they see the more nuanced reality that I'm trying to create, and they appreciate that. Hmm. I think it was I was reading an interview once with I want to say it was James Lee Burke or someone who's gotten pretty big, but he was talking about something like that where he was he's a lot of his stories takes place in, I don't know, New Orleans or Texas or whatever. And he's like, I'm not, people think this is, I'm writing about some town and it's supposed to be exactly the way it is, but I'm just trying to tell a story and that's the place that I know. So people would go to these yeah. places, you know, James Lee Berg, he sells millions of copies of books. I guess people go to the places looking for it to be like that because they want the adventure or I don't know, to be nosy or something. <laughs> but, yeah. but he's like, that's not, 
you know, that's not really what I was setting out to do. And actually, you know, it's interesting that I mentioned that he popped into my head because I was reading like halfway through the line that held us and he was someone that there was a bit like right in the middle of one of the books that reminded me of one of his early novels. Um, I don't know if you've ever read James Lee Burke, but Neon Rain, it's a book that kind of reminded me of a bit of the line that held no, us. No, no, I haven't read that. Um, well, hey, I appreciate the time. Um, let me ask you one last question. What's the best... Okay. I, was, I like to kind of end this with uh, when I'm talking to, to writers. What's the best book that you've read recently? Uh, let's see. It would probably... I, I might wind up screwing the name up. Uh, damn it, what's the name? It's Esteban Rodriguez is the poet's name. Uh, it actually doesn't even come out until this September or October. Uh, Esteban Rodriguez is his name. He's a poet. Title, uh, the, the book's coming out with Hub City Press. The Book of Poetry. Uh, God, I'm from, from Hub City? Yeah. Yeah, it's from Hub City Books. And his name is Esteban Rodriguez. I is think it it's Dusk called and Dusk and Dust. Yeah, yeah. Dusk and Dust. That's exactly right. Mm. Yeah, that book is absolutely gorgeous. Uh, and maybe the second poem in there is is one of the most brilliant things I've read in a very long time. Mm. Uh, just just the way that it wrestles with with privilege uh, mm. and what privilege means, and and the and just the levels of of that mm. uh, that that poem. I can't remember the name of it. I'm bad with names. I'm, I'm more with more with content. Uh, but so <laughs> it's this poem, and it's about a. a a Mexican mother and child who have who have moved into the U.S. They're living right there on the border, uh, and she is crossing the border back into Mexico to go have a tooth worked on because she can't afford a dentist in America. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when she crosses the border and they're walking through there, they're running into all the Mexican uh, people who can't cross the border. So there's this crazy dynamic of this person who's like bottom rung in the American tiers of, of economy, uh, but who is almost like a queen when she crosses over into the type of poverty that she's left. Mm. Uh, it, it's brilliant. Uh, and uh, that, that whole poetry collection is brilliant. Hub City's putting out a whole lot of gorgeous, gorgeous writing. Do you think it's appealing because your work deals with some of those same questions of poverty and and class and things like that? I mean, you certainly see it in in the line that held us. Yeah, that, well, I think that's definitely it. But at the same time, I think you know, I think it's because it forced me to wrestle with a different type of privilege that I can't understand. Uh, you know, yeah, as, as a yeah. white man in America, I am the top of the damn food chain as far as privilege goes. Uh, you know, I have, uh, you know, life for me is, as you know, whether it's working class or not, I am not li- the one thing that I am not limited by is gender or race. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so, you know, for me, I'm about as privileged as it gets in that sense. Uh, and so then to then to look at a story and to think about it uh, about those levels of of uh, what it means to to be first generation or or you know 
uh, yeah, first, first generation America versus, you know, growing up in Mexico. To think about privilege on that type of scale, I think, is maybe something that I hadn't uh, really thought about or wrestled with. Hmm. It's interesting how how often that's coming up when I talk to writers. I, I interviewed a novelist named Christian Kiefer, whose book Phantoms came out earlier this year, and it's about the uh, Japanese, well, the concentration camps that we put the... I mean, I guess we didn't call them that at the time, but that's basically what they were uh, yeah. in around World War Two. It's about it's about that, con- about the, sto- the stories of people who had to had to deal with that, and it seems like that's just. I mean, I guess for for obvious reasons, given the landscape right now, but um, yeah, it's coming up in a lot of fiction. And it seems like there's a lot of people wrestling with it, and I, sp- I guess it's about time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> that's exactly right. Well, hey, I I really enjoyed this and I I really appreciate the time and really enjoyed the book. And um, so the paperback comes out early July, right? For the line that held us? Uh, Yeah, yeah, that's right. Where's the best place for people to pick that up? I mean, Amazon's always an option, I suppose, but I'm guessing there's somewhere better for you. Yeah, if it's me, I'd go to wherever their local independent bookseller is. And if it's not sitting on the shelf at that bookstore, have them order a copy. Uh, but, But that's just me. (laughs) <laughs> hey, I'm right there with you. Uh, well, I will yeah. I will encourage people to do that on the introduction as well. So um, again, I appreciate the time. I know you've got a, you got a busy day. So I'll let you get back to that job site. Thank you so much. Awesome. You have a good day. Well, thanks to David Joy for joining me on this episode of Libromania. Remember, you can find his books, including The Line That Held Us, which is out this month on paperback at your local independent bookseller. And thanks to you for listening. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Close Reads Pods or at Libromania Pod. If you liked this episode and this show, please hit that review button in whatever app you're using to listen. It really does go a long way in helping us spread the word, which, of course, means we can keep making more episodes like this one. For all of us here at the Close Reads Podcast Network, I'm David Kern. Thanks for listening and happy reading. Talk to you next week. Close Reads.